0: And it is a privilege to bring you God's Word this morning. Uh, And it's especially a privilege because this series in the Gospel of Mark, uh, this Gospel of the Kingdom series, originally began in 2019 uh, before Pastor Wes joined us and was called to this church. And so when the series was rebooted last year, uh, I was encouraged. It was a testimony just to the perseverance of this church body over the last several years. And the fact that by God's grace, we're journeying on together in the Lord. Amen? Amen. Well, our text this morning is the parallel text to the one we just heard. It's Mark chapter 8, verses 11 and 21. You can turn there now. Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 21. That's page 843 in the Bibles in the pews. And if you are a first-time visitor here, or if you're not a first-time visitor but you don't happen to have your own copy of the Word of God, you can keep the copy that's in the pews there with you. And as you're turning there, note from last week that this account comes to us right after the feeding of the 4,000, the second of two miraculous feedings we see in the ministry of Jesus. And this text here ties together what might seem to be two unrelated episodes. We're going to read through two sections in the text, but of course the little subtitles that you see are not original And those were inserted later. We know that it all flows together as one narrative. So to orient us in this Gospel of the Kingdom series, there's a lot of different ways that you can structure and outline the book of Mark. Many of us know that Jesus' ministry had three years and three phases within those three years. I particularly like the outline that the Reformation Study Bible gives of the book of Mark, which splits Jesus' ministry into two major movements in Mark's presentation of it, with, at the beginning, a section in the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 1 of a short prologue concerning the preparation for Christ, the Son of God. And then the the first of these two bigger movements, first the disclosure of Christ, the Son of God. And that's from chapter 1, verse 14, to just about where we will end today in chapter 8, verse 26, And then the events culminating in the suffering of Christ, starting early in Matthew, excuse me, Mark, chapter 2, all the way through 1547. And finally, a short epilogue concerning the resurrection that also leaves you on a little bit of a cliffhanger, as we'll see when we get to the conclusion of the book. And so where we are today with these two related texts in verses 11 through 21 in chapter 8 brings us to almost the end of that first major movement in the book, the disclosure of Christ, the revelation of Christ in his initial ministry. And this section in chapter 8 also serves as the conclusion or the capstone of a a smaller section from Mark 6 to 8 that are all concerned with food episodes or events that concern food or eating. And it's anticipating the revelation of Christ. That's going to happen later in this chapter in Peter's confession of faith in Christ and also his revelation of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 9. And so this is sort of, if you would envision the the book of Mark as a a screenplay, imagine this as being one of the last scenes before the curtains draw for the intermission. And so with that background, let's turn our attention to God's Word, penned by John Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Again, Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 11. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the four thousand how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Let's pray, church. Our merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we approach you in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing whatever sins we've carried with us through the week, we thank you that we have assurance of pardon before you. We thank you that your mercy is so great that you do not treat us the way that our sins deserve. And so, Father, with a heart of gratitude, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word this morning. We pray that you would guide my tongue, my lips, and that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would be glorified in the person of your Son and by the power of your Spirit through your Word preached this morning. We pray that you would speak to the hearts of all who are here, whether they're in Christ or if they're still not yet in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would do your work, and we'll give you all the praise and the honor. We ask this in Jesus' name, and we pray for his sake. Amen. Well, this message I've sort of tentatively titled, Reading the Signs, and I think that theme will be woven throughout. Now, but this series in the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of Mark, this is the good news of Jesus' kingdom. It's not about us. And so as we approach the main theme or the thesis for the message, it's not about us. The thesis is a statement concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, since as we come to the text, we want to ask, what does this text principally say to us about Christ? And so our thesis for this morning is... The Lord Jesus Christ does not satisfy the hypocritical unbelieving with a sign, but mercifully reveals his sufficiency to his people whose hearts are open despite their doubt. Again, our main theme for this morning is that the Lord Jesus Christ does not satisfy the hypocritical unbelieving with a sign, but mercifully reveals his sufficiency to his people whose hearts are open despite their doubt. And so our two points will follow the two sections of this text that are broken off for you, starting in verses 11 through 13. Verse 11, we see again, it says, The Pharisees came to him and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So first, we have the statement that the Pharisees came. That is, they came to Dalmanutha. See verse 10, immediately beforehand. Now, if you're reading in Mark, as we just read, a moment ago you'll notice that Matthew excuse me Matthew places them in the region of Magadan in Matthew chapter 15 verse 39 which many take to be a variation of Magdala as in Mary the Magdalene is from Magdala so is this a contradiction here or more likely is the different term for the same place a place that's likely on the fringes of Jewish territory in Galilee, near the very Sea of Galilee. Well, there's no contradiction between the two texts here, between the two Gospels. We simply do recognize that Del was nearby or within the region of Magadan, since Matthew calls it the region of Magadan, hence the interchangeable identification. Now, depending on the person with whom I'm speaking, if you were to ask me where I'm from, uh, I might say that I'm from York County, I might say that I'm from North York, I might say that I'm from Central School District. I might say that I'm from Manchester Township, but not Manchester. That's in East Manchester uh, Township. Important (laughs) distinction here. We're very balkanized here in central Pennsylvania for whatever reason. Uh, But such is the confusing nature of place names. And of course, when we come to the text of Scripture, we also have to give the same deference that we would in conversation with someone else, recognizing that Scripture does not contradict itself. Instead, when we read Scripture, we approach it according to the rule that's called the analogy of faith, the principle that states that when two texts appear to be in conflict with each other, well, we know by faith that they're not, since God cannot lie, he cannot contradict himself, and so rather we seek to harmonize those texts rather than to pit one against the other. And we do suspect that this territory was more culturally Gentile than it was Jewish, since it says the Pharisees had to come there, they're following Jesus. He just fed the 4,000. They follow him to the other side. They're chasing him down. And why are they chasing him down? The Pharisees came arguing with him, again, verse 11, seeking from him a sign from heaven. So here we go again. What Jesus had just done is not enough. Now John Calvin, the reformer, comments on this passage that to avoid being compelled To yield to the truth, the Pharisees here introduce something which is foreign to the subject. So to avoid being convinced, they bring up something else. Maybe you remember in John 4, when the woman at the well is about to be convinced of what Jesus is saying, she changes the topic and says, well, but what about what mountain we should worship on? This is the same sort of thing here. This is whataboutism at its worst. Well, what about this? Oh, yeah, Jesus? Well, how about a real sign from heaven? That's the sense of this question here. That feeding of the 4,000 was fine, but can you call down fire from heaven, perhaps? And they did it in order to test him, verse 11 says. So this is, interestingly, not the first time that God's people had received bread from heaven and yet chose to put the Lord to the test anyway. It happened in the wilderness with Moses, you'll recall, who then rebuked them in Deuteronomy Chapter 6, verse 16, saying, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus quotes that same passage during his temptation in the wilderness, when Satan tempts him with several things, including making bread in the wilderness. And so the Pharisees, just like the Exodus generation, whose bodies were scattered in the wilderness because of unbelief, And just like Satan in the wilderness, the Pharisees now are next in line to put Jesus to the test. Verse 12, and he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And so we reach our first of two points in this message. And the first is that when faced with this sort of obstinate skepticism... The Lord Jesus Christ does not satisfy with a sign those who persist in hypocritical unbelief. And that's persisting unrepentantly. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ does not satisfy with a sign those who persist unrepentantly in hypocritical unbelief. And we'll see Jesus' response here, that he refuses to give them what they're asking for. Verse 12, he sighed deeply in his spirit. And the word translated to sigh deeply there, that's a very interesting word, meaning to draw up breaths from the bottom of the chest. This is a deep, frustrated sigh. Of course, Mark is concerned throughout his gospel to present to us a depiction of Jesus who feels and emotes not only as truly divine but as truly man and all that it means to be a man. And this sigh doesn't just come from his bodily temper the way his lungs were feeling at that particular moment. No, this sigh, it says, comes from his spirit. Why is that significant? A little bit of a history lesson. Apollinaris of Laodicea was a 4th century teacher who stood against the heresy of Arianism, which was the heretical teaching that Jesus was a created being subordinate to God, created by God, not of one nature as God. But Apollinaris, maybe well-intentioned, went too far and made the equal and opposite error of supposing that Jesus had a human body, yes, but a divine mind. In other words, that he was a divine mind or a divine spirit inside of a human skin suit. His humanity was skin deep. Well, we are not Apollinarians. That was another heresy condemned at the First Council of Constantinople. In the year 381, Scripture does not present to us a version of Jesus that's just a God spirit in a man suit or in a skin suit. No, he's truly God, possessing everything that defines the nature of God, and God is spirit, that is true, yet he's also truly man, possessing everything that is characteristic of a human nature except sin, meaning that he has a human body, a human mind, and a human spirit because he wouldn't be truly human without a human spirit. And his was a spirit that was rightly grieved, offended, and upset at the obstinate disbelief of the Jews. Hence, this sigh comes from the depths of his spirit. John Calvin, again here, he agrees. He says this in his commentary. The words in his spirit appear to me to be added emphatically to inform us that this groan proceeded from the deepest affection of his heart, and so that no sophist or vain lover of philosophical speculations might allege that Christ resorted to outward attitudes to express a grief that he did not inwardly feel. For that holy soul, which was guided by the zeal of the Holy Spirit, must have been moved by deep sadness at the sight of such wicked obstinacy. He felt this. Jesus was not putting on an act. He felt this deep Frustration here. And before we progress further, let's stop and remember Jesus feels. Yes, he's God. We know that God is slow to anger and rich in steadfast love, Exodus 34, verse 6. And as God, Jesus doesn't change, he doesn't uh, uh, undergo a change of state from one stasis to another, from one emotional state to another. And yet as man, and as truly man, with a human spirit, he has human affections, human will, such that he is disinclined towards the obstinate, hypocritical, stubborn skeptics who are demanding in this passage more and more of him to prove himself. He's not indifferent to that. He's rightly incensed against them. He's filled with righteous indignation. Therefore, let us not put him to the test ourselves. For though our Lord is slow in anger and rich in love, he will not allow the wicked to persist in their rebellion and their doubt forever. Let's not put him to the test and provoke that same frustrated reaction. He says this, verse 12, Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he asks, why does this generation seek a sign? Well, what generation is he talking about? Well, he said this not directly to us. He said this in a historical context. And that context was the terminal, the final generation of the Jewish nation that was to remain until Christ's kingdom dawned in history. That the church was founded. That Christ then, because his people had rejected him and crucified their Messiah, and the nation remained largely unrepentant, that that nation would experience judgment by means of the Roman invasion, which happened from A.D. 67 culminating in A.D. 70, again for rejecting their Messiah. That impending judgment on that final generation of the Jewish leadership forms much of the backdrop of the Old Testament. It's always there lurking under the surface if you have eyes to see, even in Mark's Gospel. Pay attention to Mark chapter 9, verse 1, or the first 12 verses of Mark 12, or Mark 13, verse 30. Where Mark deals with this theme that's under the surface. Because don't forget, God deals with us as individuals before his throne, yes. But he also does deal with nations, with cultures, with people groups in time and space and history. So what does he say to this people, the Jewish nation that existed at the time in that generation? He says that to them, again in verse 12, no sign will be given. So you have to ask, what, in what sense is that true? After all, weren't they just given the greatest sign imaginable? First of all, the incarnation of the Son of God himself. Jesus is there among them. Is that not a sign? But secondly, weren't they just shown the feeding of the 5,000? So in what sense is it true that they won't receive a sign? Well, note the type of sign that they were after. They were after a sign from heaven to test him. Verse 11. In other words, what they'd seen was earthly. They wanted something more spectacular to dazzle them, their sensations. John Gill, the Baptist scholar and pastor from the 18th century, said this, that the Pharisees were pretending dissatisfaction with the miracles that he wrought on earth. In other words, they could have been persuaded, but they decided to play hard to get. They decided to act hard to please. Earthly miracles weren't enough. The healings, the multiplying of bread, no, they wanted to be impressed, dazzled. The Jews wanted a sign like Yahweh descending from heaven onto the mountain to speak to Moses, thunder and lightning and smoke. Or they wanted the sun to stand still as it did for Joshua. Or maybe even for God to send fire from heaven as he did in the days of Elijah. John Gill says that they held that thunder and lightning revealed God more certainly than supernatural victories of compassion, tenderness, and love. Well, given the choice between the two, I would rather have those supernatural victories of compassion, tenderness, and love rather than spectacular displays. I don't know about you. But why does Jesus say that there's no sign given? Well, secondly, we saw in the scripture reading this morning from Matthew's parallel account, in Matthew chapter 16, that Matthew gives the answer. He actually adds a bit more and interprets the statement. He says that Jesus says in verse 4 of chapter 16 An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So they are indeed given a sign, but it's not the sort of sign that they wanted. It was the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was as good as dead in the depths of the sea for three days and three nights before he came out bleached and reeking of the fishy stench of death, in order to preach repentance to a violent pagan nation, the Ninevites. So also, the Lord Jesus Christ was about to spend three days and three nights in the grave before rising and commanding all nations to repent, starting with that of the Jews. So Jonah's preaching threatened the Ninevites with a coming judgment if they didn't repent. And in similar fashion, now the Jewish leaders are being told that unless they repent, well, they'll perish as well. And they're being compared, of course, in all of that to the Ninevites themselves, that generation has become as pagan and unbelieving as the Assyrian city of Nineveh itself. Well, what a stinging indictment from our Lord. And oh, how often do the skeptics of our day presume to tell God how he has to prove himself to them. I've told this story before. I knew a man years ago who rejected Christianity. Christianity. And one day he told me that he would be willing to believe if God came down and told him that he was real. And, of course, I laughed at the irony. Why? Because God has done exactly that. That is the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you remember the old Joan Osborne song, What If God Was One of Us? It commits the same error. God has become one of us. That is the message of Scripture. But because it didn't happen in our lifetimes, then it doesn't count for our standard of evidence. How foolish we are. This is folly. And today's atheist, just as the Jews of that day, would rather see parlor tricks, magic acts, performed to satisfy the vain imagination of man. And God has no time for that sort of thinking. Jesus' greatest miracle was not, it was not a display of cosmic energy like something out of a Hollywood production, something out of a Marvel film. There was no sky beam. Now, his greatest display of power was an ugly cross and an empty tomb, the sign of Jonah. But they didn't want to read that sign. Well, God doesn't satisfy people who aren't satisfied with that with some sort of additional sign. He doesn't give the hypocritical skeptic what they want. And Paul made a similar statement in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 and 23. He said, For Jews demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom. Maybe you don't want the magic sky beam to prove that God is real. Maybe you just want a tightly knit, tightly wound, philosophical, abstract system that satisfies your itching intellect. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So we don't need a show. We don't need a philosophical system. What we need most of all is the cross of Christ and all of its foolish glory. And this is not only a mistake made by the atheist, made by the Jews of Jesus' day, or made by the skeptic today. This is a mistake that we make as followers of Christ. See, we too as Christians are far too often guilty of lusting after more than what God has given us in his word, in the ordinances, and by his spirit in the church. We long for some ecstatic experience on a spiritual mountaintop. We want to see a revival. Maybe we want a charismatic gift. Maybe we want signs and wonders. Maybe we want an emotional high or maybe some secret key to unlock hidden knowledge or insight or enlightenment. How dull then is our love for Christ? If only we knew all the riches that we already have in him, we wouldn't want much else. Someone recently made that comment to me. We were Having a conversation. He was not speaking about our church. He was speaking of churches in general. He says he wished that the church, the worship of the church, would be more led by the Spirit. That there would be a fresh word, maybe something spontaneous happening that's unplanned once in a while, so that you know that the Holy Spirit is at work. Of course, we want the Holy Spirit to be at work, but. He does that when Christ is lifted up and when his word is preached. And if we're bored with that, if we're dissatisfied with the gospel, if we're bored with the Lord Jesus Christ, bored with the Lord's day, bored with our triune God, then nothing new or spontaneous will satisfy us ultimately. We can't be guilty of that same error. And finally, just note in verse 13, And he left them, got into that boat again, and went to the other side. So this now marks his fourth departure from Galilee. A prophet is not welcome in his own hometown after all. Why shouldn't we tempt the Lord? Why shouldn't we put him to the test the same way that they did? As if we needed more reasons. Remember that Jesus says in Matthew 13, verse 12, For the one who has, to the one who has, more will be given, and he who has an abundance, excuse me, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, Even what he has will be taken away. Why should we not do as they did and put the Lord to the test? Well, they didn't respond to what light they had. And so it was taken away from them. They departed. Rather, Jesus departed from them. But those who respond to the light, to the revelation, to the knowledge of Jesus Christ that they have, to them God will give more. He will reveal himself more. And that's what we're about to see in our second point. But if you put him to the test, he may withdraw from you. Don't find out the hard way. He doesn't reveal himself to those who are seeking signs in pretense. Rather, to those who are open towards him, he reveals himself plainly. And we're about to see that even though the disciples are too thick to even perceive it, he still reveals himself plainly to them, and he gets frustrated again with them. So he just laid down the law with the Pharisees. Now he's about to lay down the law with his disciples. But the tone is different. He asks them a series of rhetorical questions not to rebuke them harshly and to make them feel terrible, but rather because of his love for them, he's trying to shake them from their stupor. He's trying to get them to see what he intends to reveal to them. And so, again, what does this teach us about Christ? Well, secondly, starting in verse 14 down to verse 21, our second point of the message is this, that the Lord Jesus Christ reveals his sufficiency to his people whose hearts are open despite their doubt. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ reveals his sufficiency to his people whose hearts are open despite their doubt. And so we shift from the conversation in Dalmanutha. We go back out onto the waters. And Mark writes this, verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. I mentioned the theme of food throughout these chapters. Well, it returns here. This is the closing bookend or the closing bracket that was opened in Mark 6. And in your Bible, if you have the Pew Bible, you can turn to page 841 or you can just sort of visualize what's just happened here over the last several months of preaching. We've heard about all of these episodes involving food. The first incident was the feeding of the 5,000, which is contrasted with King Herod serving the head of John the Baptist on a platter. In contrast to King Herod, Jesus is the good king who feeds his people, not with the blood of the martyrs, not with the blood of the saints and the prophets, but rather with his own body and blood. Jesus is the good king who feeds himself to save his people. Then, in Mark 7, Jesus' disciples are rebuked by the Pharisees for not washing their hands before what? Before eating. So Jesus rebukes the Pharisees in term for honoring God with their lips, but not with their hearts. In the same chapter in verse, excuse me, chapter 7, Jesus explains that what comes out of the heart is what defiles man, not the food that goes in. And so he repeals, he abrogates all of the Old Testament dietary laws for the new covenant people of God and declares all foods clean. Then the Syrophoenician woman, an unclean Gentile woman, comes to him and asks for a healing for her daughter. Jesus tests her by saying that the proverbial children in the household of God, the family sitting at the table, that is the Jewish nation... Deserved to be fed first. The woman, in the humility of true faith, likens herself to the family dog sitting under the table, panting and begging for table scraps to fall. And Jesus praises her faith and grants the request. And finally, earlier in chapter 8, 4,000 were fed in a Gentile territory, which serves as the closing bracket here. So, what's the significance of this arrangement? You say, Alex, that's interesting, that's neat. But what does that have to do with this text here today? Well, if nothing else, we should pay all the more diligent attention to how Jesus closes this series of episodes here, knowing that what he says in some way is meant to summarize and interpret all of what came before. So the structure is significant. What Jesus is about to say is based on everything that has preceded it. And so here's what he says, verse 15. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. This is a solemn warning. He doesn't just say, Watch out. He doesn't just say, Beware. He says, Watch out. Beware. He says both. And the occasion of this warning is the fact that the disciples forgot to pack bread, but of course, the point that he's about to make goes far deeper than where they're about to get their lunch. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, he says in verse 15. Again, another food metaphor, talking about leaven or yeast. So let's ask three questions here. Number one, why leaven? It seems unrelated. Two, what is the leaven? And three, whose leaven are we talking about? First, why leaven? Why does Jesus liken this, whatever this is, to leaven or to yeast? Well, yeast is a flexible metaphor in Scripture. It can stand for anything that in tiny, minute measure has a transforming effect, a permeating effect of the whole of a substance, whatever it's hidden in. And it changes the nature of that substance. So it's often a negative image, not always, but often a negative image used to describe sin. That's probably the image with which the Jews would have been most familiar. After all, during the week of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread... The children of Israel were instructed to purge every square inch of their dwellings of any trace of yeast and eat only unleavened bread. And that yeast represented sin and its pervading, contaminating power. And that's recounted for us in Exodus chapter 12, verses 14 through 20. So as the Jews were preparing to leave Egypt, they were told, get all of the leaven, all of the sin out of their lives. They're about to be delivered, so get ready. That's why Paul picks up on that metaphor and tells the Corinthian Christians, in the book of 1 Corinthians, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8. So leaven often stands for the pervasive, permeating power of sin. Just as when you hide a little bit of yeast in your dough, it causes the whole lump of dough to rise. Well, is that what leaven means here? Matthew, again in his parallel account, informs us that Jesus was referring to the teaching of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 16, verse 12. He says that the leaven is the teaching of the Pharisees. Well, Luke, in a similar passage, Luke 12:1 identifies the leaven as their hypocrisy. So we have teaching, we have hypocrisy. Mark doesn't say explicitly what that leaven is. Another commentator, a helpful source, Jerome, the translator of the Latin Vulgate, in his commentary written in the 5th century, he identifies the leaven as heresy. So we've got another potential contender. Is it teaching, hypocrisy, heresy? Well, the principle here is the same. A little bit of any one of those things will spoil your whole course of life. A little bit of bad teaching, a little bit of hypocrisy, a little bit of heretical doctrine will ruin and permeate and work its way through your entire walk with God. And these three meanings, well, they don't contradict. They all work together. Jude warns us of false teachers in the church who, he says in verse 4, have crept in unnoticed long ago, and who were designated for this condemnation, listen to this, ungodly people, he's talking about false teachers, heretical teachers in the early church, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So the content of their false teaching serves to justify their immorality. See, false teaching and hypocritical lifestyles go hand in hand. The former exists to justify the latter. Rarely, if ever, will you find a morally upright, decent, false teacher or heretic. You will not. So we must avoid the leaven of this sort of corrupt, hypocritical teaching that justifies sin, justifies disobedience, justifies self-pleasure, in this case, the Pharisees, un, excuse me, the Pharisees' willful unbelief is the leaven. And instead, we must avail ourselves of the bread of sincere, true faith and practice, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So we've answered so far why leaven and what the leaven means, but whose leaven is this here, too? Again, if you were paying attention to the reading of Matthew, you notice a slight difference here. Mark says it's the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, or, according to some manuscripts, the Herodians. That was the political party of Herod, the ruling class, the dynasty of Herod. Matthew says it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees' leaven in view here in Jesus' teaching. Again, why the difference? Can we resolve it? There's no contradiction. What does it mean? Well, some scholars believe and note that the Herodians were, in fact, themselves Sadducees, and that most of the Sadducees were generally Herodians. There was a political alignment. These were unholy bedfellows, strange bedfellows here, the Sadducees and the Herodians. One legend, again cited by our friend Jerome, who we mentioned a minute ago, the translator of the Latin Vulgate, one legend that he cites says that Herod himself actually converted to Sadduceism out of the guilt that he felt for executing John the Baptist. That could be the source of why Matthew and Mark list things differently here, either the Pharisees and Herod or the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But more to the point, what do these groups have in common? How is it that Jesus can group together and say, avoid the leaven singular, the one type of leaven of the Pharisees who were the religious conservatives, the reform party whom Jesus respected and actually gave honor to in some sense. See Matthew 23, verses 2 and 3, he says, they sit on the seat of Moses. Listen to what they say. How can he group them with the Sadducees who were the mainline liberal elite denomination who rejected the supernatural, denied the resurrection, and were in bed with the government? So these were the progressive theologians of their day. Who you would have caught spouting all of the ruling class's talking points. These were the, the blue check marks of their day. And then he also compares them to the ungodly autocratic Herodian rulers themselves. How can he group them all together? Well... Jesus' point is that the leaven, or this corrupting influence, is the same. Whether the corrupting agent is the sort of man-made, legalistic, pharisaical rules that the Pharisees taught, or what Paul calls in Colossians, regulations for the body that are useless for the restraining of the flesh, or if it's, along with the Pharisees, high-minded philosophical systems of thought, which do not hold fast to Christ, but instead cling to human opinion and being well-regarded by the best thinkers, by the inner circle, the blue check marks, or if one's opiate or one's idol is a political movement, as with the Herodians. Maybe you think, well, if we just vote the right way every four years, we don't have to do anything else, everything else will always be fine. We'll get them next time. Rather than loving your neighbor and being in community with your neighbor and taking action at a local level, Whichever one of those idolatries happens to be yours, they all have the same leavening, corrupting influence in our lives. If any single one of those forms of hypocrisy assume the central point in our lives, even to the slightest degree, then like yeast, they'll work their way through everything and corrupt our whole walk with Christ. Therefore, as Paul enjoined the Corinthians, let us beware lest we be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And that's 2 Corinthians eleven three. Jesus wants to, pr- wants to preserve our, our pure, undivided, single minded devotion to him. Verse 16. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Well, this verse can be translated a few different ways. If you're reading the King James or perhaps the NIV, you might see something like what follows. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. In other words, Jesus made his point about leaven, and the disciples are discussing among themselves, saying, why is he talking about leaven? Oh, well, it must be because we have no bread. Note their total cluelessness here. Jesus was teaching them spiritual things, And their minds were completely stuck on the earthly. And they assumed he was talking about the same food that they were concerned with. And the verb began discussing, well, that's in the imperfect tense, indicating that the action was continuous. It hadn't stopped. They were preoccupied with their hunger throughout the conversation. Of course, we all know what it's like, maybe some of you are doing this right now, to hear someone waxing eloquent in the pulpit and be thinking about your lunch plans. And you're only thinking about your hunger. I've been there too, I get it. You're thinking, man, Alex preaches longer than Wes. Well, he has more practice than I do. <laughs> but it's ironic that they're preoccupied with their lunch plans here, considering the miracle that they just saw. They just saw the five, excuse me, the four thousand fed. Well, as they speculate, perhaps it's because we lack bread. One way of understanding the motivation behind their speculation here was that Jesus had just pronounced unclean foods to be clean in the preceding chapter. Perhaps now, maybe they're thinking, maybe now he's about to pronounce all of the clean foods, the special kosher foods of the Pharisees, of the rabbis, unclean. Maybe he's just reversing the ceremonial law. Maybe that's what they're thinking here. Or, another possibility here, has to do with the fact that Pharisees allowed under certain circumstances and in certain places some leavens but not others. So maybe they're wondering, like, oh, is there a particular type of bread or leaven that we should avoid once we hit shore? Either way, they're completely missing the point. And so in verses 17 through 21, Jesus asks them this corkscrewing, this spiraling, whirlpooling series of nine rhetorical questions that are driving deeper and deeper progressively and I saw a quote on Friday actually just scrolling social media that said this and it reminded me of a friendship of mine it it said this your best friend is the one who tells you the most truth and so as Jesus asks them these frustrated questions he's doing it as their friend as their lord as their older brother not just as someone seeking to condemn them so hear the frustration, but also hear the mercy of our Lord as he asks. Verse 17, And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Well, the first question, why are you discussing, or perhaps your translation says, why are you reasoning amongst yourselves concerning the fact that you have no bread. The word can be translated reasoning, dialogue to word or reason or to logic through something. There's nothing wrong with reason. Jesus isn't condemning reason. We don't believe in blind faith devoid of reason, but this is empty reasoning. This is obstinate reasoning. Reason is not bad, but the reason that they're engaging in here is empty discussion. Second, Do you not perceive? Verse 17. So they're engaging in empty reasoning because they don't perceive. They saw the miracles, but they didn't perceive the meaning. They didn't recognize what was really going on. They saw 4,000 people be fed with one kid's lunch, and yet they didn't understand. Sometimes we can clearly see or hear, but the meaning is missed entirely remember that when Jesus rises from the dead, there's nothing especially blessed about witnessing him and perceiving him physically in front of your eyes. Rather, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe, those who do not see and yet perceive. See, what's blessed is not just to see with the eyes, even though they'd seen the miracles. That's not what's blessed. What's blessed is, whether you see or not, to understand. And do we understand this morning? Third, are your hearts hardened, he asks in verse 17. Are your hearts hardened? Well, this isn't the first time that their hearts were hardened, at least according to Mark. In Mark 6, he had pointed out after Jesus stilled the storm that they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Speaking with regard to the feeding of the 5,000 So this was still the case. Their hearts were hardened the first time Jesus fed the multitude. Their hearts are still hardened here. And that's why their reasoning is empty. That's why they don't perceive, because of the state, not of their mind only, but of their heart. Well, the heart is often capable of overriding rational thought. There's a sense in which everyone in this room, whether you're a believer, a non-believer, everyone in this room believes exactly what you want to believe. The disciples were reasoning about their food, but they were driven completely by their hearts. See, if I don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if I'm not a Christian, on some level it's because I don't want to at the level of my heart. I know what it will cost of me. I know I'll have to repent of sin. I don't want to. And maybe I'll give logical or reasonable reasons why not, but... Ultimately, it's my will that has to be changed and not just the content of my intellect. And likewise, if you are a Christian, it's not because you were smarter. It's not because you figured it out. It's not because you read the right books or listened to the right podcasts. It's because the Holy Spirit changed your heart and inclined you towards the beauty and the worth and the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't claim credit for that. Your heart was opened. That's what the doctrine of regeneration or new birth or being born again means, is that your heart is changed. And with that, your intellect is able to follow in turn. The fourth question having eyes, do you not see? And the fifth question having ears, do you not hear? Well, in these fourth and fifth questions of the nine rhetorical questions, Jesus is invoking a familiar passage that's quoted all throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts, particularly every time Jesus explains the parables. It's Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Isaiah 6 says this. This is the throne room scene. Isaiah is undone. And then he hears God saying, Who shall I send? He says, Here I am, send me. And this is what he's told to tell the people. Isaiah 6, 9. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So Isaiah, who was preaching 700 years before the time of Christ, his ministry was ordained not only to harden the Jewish nation's heart on their way to exile in Babylon. They came out of that exile, but their hearts were still hard, and it became, in some ways, progressively harder. Why? Because he was setting the stage for the rejection of the Messiah. Their hearts needed to be hardened in order for God's plan to be fulfilled by which the Messiah would suffer, be rejected, be crucified, and rise so that the gospel could go to all nations, to the Jew first, and then also to the Gentile. If you're curious about that and what all that means and the implications of that, I encourage you to read and study Romans chapter 11. But this was a covenantal judgment against the Jews that their eyes were being closed, that their ears could not hear. And Jesus turns it around and asks his very disciples that question. He's like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Not you, too. Your eyes aren't seeing, your ears aren't hearing, even though you have eyes and you have ears. It's a stinging rebuke. The sixth question and do you not remember? And then he asks three more. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? You can sort of hear the begrudging tone, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Well, they hadn't forgotten the miracle because they were able to answer those questions. Of course they remembered, but they hadn't thought about the implications of those miracles. They failed to read the signs. And Jesus, though frustrated, is tenderly prodding them towards reaching the proper conclusion. And so he asks this ninth and final rhetorical question, Do you not yet understand? So of course we ask, understand what? Again, Matthew gives the answer. Matthew 16, 11, How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? So Jesus is correcting their misunderstanding here. And then in Matthew, Jesus repeats again, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But what makes Mark Mark is that he gives less detail than Matthew. Mark doesn't answer the question. He lets it hang, just like at the end of the book. He lets it hang with the empty tomb. So we ask, again with Mark, well, understand What? Well, recall how this text is summarizing all that came before, and we summarized it in our second point by saying that Jesus reveals his sufficiency to his people whose hearts are open despite their doubts, despite their blindness of heart, his sufficiency. Well, the two complementary miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, those that form the bookends of Mark 6 through 8. They make one single point. Whether it's the feeding of the Jews or the Gentiles, Jesus is able to give life to the whole world. He is enough. They didn't understand everything that we've seen up through there. That unlike Herod, Jesus gives himself to feed his people instead of killing off the saints to do so. That unlike the ceremonial clean food that that doesn't do anything inside, receiving Jesus cleanses the heart within. That he's the good master of the house, the father at the table who feeds the family, who feeds the children, and even the dogs begging under the table. And he doesn't just feed them with table scraps. He doesn't just give us leftovers, even though that would be enough. No, he gives us his very body and blood, which is enough to satisfy and give new life and resurrection to Jew and Gentile, to all the nations. And yet at this time, his disciples were still blind and unperceiving. They needed their eyes opened. And so, to give a glimpse to next week, Jesus is about to heal a blind man and help a blind man to see. The disciples themselves couldn't yet see. After that miracle, Peter's going to give his confession of faith. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, ah, you figured it out, you're smart. No, he says, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And then he'll be revealed in chapter 9 on the Mount of Transfiguration. So this marks the close of the initial ministry of Jesus. Now we're seeing, we're seeing on brilliant display who he is. And all of those blinders will come off of the disciples' eyes in due time. So as we close and give application, we know the disciples' eyes are going to be opened as the book proceeds and even afterwards when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost. But... What about us? Well, I think the simplest way to apply this text to our lives is to simply look ourselves in the mirror, whether we're a believer or an unbeliever here today, and ask of ourselves the same two rhetorical questions that Jesus gives to his disciples and rephrase those and direct them back at ourselves. First, reminding ourselves of the earlier portion of our text, let's ask, Where is there any leaven in our lives? In other ways, in what ways have we allowed false teaching or an unhealthy or questionable doctrinal position or a heresy or hypocrisy or a winking at at a hidden sin or a willful, ornery spirit of doubt into our lives? If we're an unbeliever here today, or perhaps you're not quite yet a believer, you don't know where you stand, Listen to Jesus' warning to, be war- to beware this leaven, this influence of willful, sinful, hypocritical, false belief. If you're clinging to your lack of belief, your lack of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that will permeate and spoil your entire life. Don't make him prove himself as the Pharisees did and he withdrew from them. Because, friend, he has already proven himself. The Lord Jesus Christ himself is the Son of God, fully divine and fully man, born of a virgin, born to live a life of perpetual, constant, joyful obedience to God's law, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, died on the cross for the sins of his people, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven to rise to forgive and to justify and bring to himself all who are united to him in faith and bring them into glory and one day he will return to judge. What greater sign could there possibly be than that? So do not harden your heart. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin, your doubt, your hypocrisy, your false beliefs. Trust in him. Place your faith in him. And He is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And even, yes, to remove the stubbornness and blindness from your heart. If you're a believer, root out any leaven in your life. Maybe you've been listening to false teachers. Well, what they say is mostly good. They're just Mormon, or they're just a hyper-preterist. Don't worry about it. I can chew the meat and spit out the bones. Don't let any leaven into your life. And second, do you not remember? Jesus asks his disciples in verse 21. And I want to speak this word specifically to the believers here. Brothers and sisters in Christ, are we, like the disciples, so concerned with how much bread is in our boat or how much food we have in storage for when it all goes down or how much money we have in our bank accounts. That even when we're in the presence of Christ on the Lord's day to hear his word, we can't help but think about our worldly worries and drag his words down to this carnal level. Maybe he's talking about my refrigerator today. I'll confess, I have often dealt with worry, with doubt, especially of a financial kind or maybe worry about work or my schedule. I often deal with that as soon as I wake up in the morning. And I'm sitting there, Bible open on my lap, filled with God's promises. And what do I do instead? I take out my banking app. How blind I am. Not only is this a lack of faith on my part in the Lord's provision, it also causes me to miss out on what the Lord might be saying to me in his word that morning, just as the disciples missed Jesus' point because they were preoccupied with their worldly need. And they read everything through the lens of their growling stomachs. I know I'm not alone in this. I can't be. I know we have needs in this congregation. And after all, things don't seem to be going well economically. And what if they never come back? What if this is it for us economically in our nation? Well, Jesus says, do you not remember? Three final exhortations. First, remember his past deeds. Consider Psalm 77, verses 11 and 12. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will recount your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Or Psalm 143, verse 5. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. Do we recount the past deeds of the Lord? Or have we forgotten what he's just done in our lives? Second, remember his promises. And we're quick to forget these. Of course, there's no promise of earthly ease or comfort for the follower of Christ. We don't believe in a gospel of prosperity this side of eternity, strictly speaking. But neither will God abandon us. Neither is God unconcerned about our worldly provisions. David said this in Psalm 37, verse 25. I have been young, and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his children begging for bread. Or consider Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with such as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. And finally, remember his provision in Christ. He meets not only our needs for the body, but he's the good king who has given us himself. And so the apostle Paul picks up on this line of thought in Romans chapter 8 verses 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And in 1 Corinthians, Paul goes so far as to say that in Christ, all things are yours. So we must read the signs. We must remember the Lord's past deeds, his promises his provision so that we'll remember the sufficiency of Christ and be satisfied in him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the hypocrisy, the leaven, the faulty teaching that we've allowed into our lives on some level, the doubt that persists even though we're following you. Lord, and open our eyes to see your all-sufficiency and not be dragged down to worry about carking cares of the world, but rather to remember what you've just done in our lives, what you did 2,000 years ago, what you have yet to do when you return and make all wrongs right. Lord, help us to call these things to our mind and help us to remember that you are enough for us. Your body, your blood, given for the life of the world are all we really need. And if we have those, we have more than enough. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. As we come to the conclusion of our service this morning, at this time, church, let's prepare our hearts and our minds to partake in the Lord's Supper.